Okay, so why, why did I choose that extract? Why did I stop it there? What was the reason, do you think, that I stopped it where I stopped it? End of Act 1, that's right. Yeah, and that's quite interesting. It's an interesting debate in itself, actually, because um, you know, these things aren't always a science, and you can, we talk about them amongst ourselves. But I think uh, what you get by that point is you've got all the... You've set up the story, and you've know, got all the main characters in, and you know what the stakes are. Um, and so we'll talk through the beginning, middle, and end of Act 3. You know, I talked about those 12 sequences, uh, those 12 chapters, what the three chapters are that we've just seen. Um, does anybody want to have a go at what they think the three chapters are, you know, just to describe them roughly? Anybody want to have a go at that? There's no wrong answers, don't worry. Yeah, go on. That's three, okay. That's, yeah, that's close. I think I would say it like this. So I think the first chapter is um, the day out, wanting a day out, and it's setting up a lot of things there. Um, so we establish, first of all, um, the theme, the idea and the theme, the things I talked about right at the beginning. Um, so the idea for this film, obviously it's based on a TV show, uh, so one idea was, why don't we make a film out of that TV show? But um, the actual idea of taking the flock out of their natural world on the farm to the city, it's not massively a high-concept idea, um, but there's one other high-concept idea. Can anybody tell me what that is that's in this movie? I don't know if you've seen it or not. Uh, no, it's the actual the way the movie's done. I'll, we'll come back to the theme in a minute. I'm, t I'm confusing you. It's my fault. Uh, the high-concept idea is that no one talks. So it's a whole film that's a silent movie. And I can tell you that was quite a nervous idea for the studios. Um, but they embraced it, to be fair to them. We weren't sure we could make it work either, but we, that's how the TV show works. Going back to the theme, be careful what you wish for, as somebody mentioned. We thought about it like this, which is it's a story about how we sometimes take what we have in life and the people who love us for granted. Uh, it's a story about learning to appreciate what we have. So it's a very simple, like I said earlier, almost like a desk calendar, very simple little homily, but um, actually quite a profound theme because I think we all do this. So at the beginning of the story, we uh, setting up the day out, we establish that once the farm was happy and they were young and they didn't take each other for granted, that's the prologue, that's what you see at the very beginning. Um, those images of just, you know, uh, super eight young sheep f having fun with the farmer. Like when we, you know, if you've got young family or whatever, that feeling of just a joy. And then they've lost that. And then we had this big se sequence where they're very fed up with the routine. And like we thought that adults and kids can appreciate that sense of being locked into a routine. And so what's the outcome of that is that you want to, uh, there's a moment in the story where Sean looks at the farm and he looks like the devil. And that's establishing, that's how the character and the theme are working together because you're the trouble, you're the problem in my life, I'm going to get rid of you. And that sets the template of the story because we know what's going to happen in the end is that the farmer, the, the Sean is going to have to get the farmer back and is going to have to appreciate him and, and know that he actually loves the farmer who's like a father figure in this story. So we know um, that was one thing that we imagine this story rather than being like, workers on a farm that it was like a family like an extended family with bits of like an older brother and everything and Sean like a Malcolm in the middle and the farmer like a, a parent figure so going back to the three chapters so we've got let's have a day out that's chapter one isn't it Sean's day out 
And I think that takes us all the way up to getting him in the caravan. And um, that's the inciting incident. It's what Robert McKee calls the inciting incident. I, I, I won't get too technical about it because I don't entirely agree with the inciting incident theory because I think there's lots of little inciting incidents. Sid Field talks about a kicker before, you know, you can, anyway, what's, what's responsible for what? I don't know, but the main thing is there's a big idea which is let's put the farmer to sleep and put him in a caravan. And then the, they get their day off, or they get some of it, and then Bitzer intervenes and um, all hell breaks loose and the farmer goes off in a caravan. So that's the first chapter. The second chapter is that the, now Sean is home alone so we're exploring that idea, and the farmer is getting lost in the city, so we're exploring that idea. So we're kind of extending the story. Um, and the third chapter is into the city, the decision to go into the city. And the reason why that's still in Act 1, even though we've changed from the ordinary world into the new world, if you like, into the extraordinary world, is because we haven't established everything yet. We haven't established the villain story for a start. Now, um, Christopher Vogler calls that villain, we met him at the bus station, he would call that a threshold guardian. So what we did was a little bit unusual in that our threshold guardian was the actual villain. Normally, you know, a character will go somewhere, you know, into the temple or whatever, and somebody will try and attack them or something, and that's called a threshold guardian. You can't just walk into the new world and not expect to be challenged in some way. But we also established the dog character who will become significant later in the story, who's the counterfoil to Sean. Sean takes for granted his home and his family, and we meet a character who's got no home, he's got no family. And so that character as well, as I said, is entwined in the theme. Um, now, Blake Schneider calls that section of the story, w when we go into the city, he calls that the debate. And the reason why he calls it the debate is because there's a question mark over whether this, the hero characters can actually achieve the big move into the new world. So he goes, so Sean has gone into the city, that's fine, but the flock have come with him, and now there's a very dangerous man around who's trying to capture them. Will they be able to find a way to survive in the city? The solution to that is that they uh, dress up as humans, and they escape his clutches, and they then set off to find the farmer. And that's why the three chapters make up Act One. Um, and that's about 25 minutes. And normally in a feature animation, uh, that inciting incident, the first chapter, is about 12 to, 15, 12 to 14 minutes. Um, otherwise, you know, you want something big to happen fairly early on. So that's the first thing about the structure, about the idea, about the theme, about the structure. Um, talk about a couple of other things, a couple of other problems that came up when we were writing that. We were talking earlier about development hell, and we had a fair amount of development hell. Hopefully it's invisible when you watch the film, um, but I can assure you it wasn't easy. And one of the things we came across was a problem that they had on Toy Story. Has everybody seen Toy Story? So we named it after the producer who works at Ardman called Paul Cooley. We called it Cooley's Paradox because he kept bringing it up. And I got so angry with him that I called it Cooley's Paradox after him. And so he got branded with this annoying thing. And I'll tell you what it is. is um, you often have stories, and Toy Story is an example. Another one is Brave. Do you remember that story? Where your central character starts off by, say, not liking someone or wanting to get rid of someone. 
And so they do, or it happens that that person has got rid of. And then that character, in order for the story to proceed into Act 2, that character has to then uh, make the decision to go and look for that character, look for the one they've got rid of. So, you know, um, uh, Woody has to makes a decision to go and look for Buzz. And in Brave, I can't remember the name of the characters, but it's her mum who's turned into a bear. She has to go and find her mum. The problem there is, if you set up an idea in the story, a character flaw, which is, say, for example, in this one, Sean. Sean's problem is Sean's problem at the beginning of the story is that he he doesn't uh, he doesn't you know he takes for granted what he's got. He, he he wants to get rid of the farmer. He thinks he's the problem in his life. He gets rid of the farmer and then immediately goes to get him back. He's resolved his heroic flaw. He's already emotionally fine. You get 20 minutes into the movie and the story is emotionally inert from that point on. That's why it's a paradox. Because if he doesn't leave to find the farmer, you've got no story. But the moment he leaves to try and get the farmer, you've resolved his heroic flaw. And it's a, it's called, we call it Cooley's Paradox. They talked about it on Tour Story. They didn't, they didn't call it Cooley's Paradox. But... Um, they found a soul for it, and uh, we found a soul for it. I'm not sure they ever found a soul for it in Brave, to be honest with you. In Brave, I find it odd, because it's a lovely film, but don't get me wrong, but she's, oh, mum, you're such a problem in my life. Oh, my God, you're a bear. Oh, mum, I'm so sorry. Don't be a bear anymore. It feels like there's something not quite right about that process. But in Toy Story, and what we tried to do here was, it's, we, we said, okay, let's have a situation where Sean wants to get rid of the farmer. That's his heroic flaw. He takes for granted the farmer. He gets rid of him. And then things go badly wrong on the farm for the flock. And they turn on Sean. Sean, you've done this. You've done this. You got rid of the farmer. Now we can't have any food. It's all physical things. We can't eat. And the bulls got out, and it's terrible. And so Sean's response is, fine. I'll get the farmer back if that's what you want. So we resolve that issue because um, Sean is not emotionally yet mature enough to realize that he wants the farmer for himself. So if you will watch the rest of the film, and I hope you do, uh, he goes out into the city and he goes searching for the farmer. And at the end of Act 2, remember I told you about that dark night of the soul, he thinks he's lost the farmer forever. And that's when he realizes a big emotional epiphany. Oh my God, I actually love that man. He's actually my father figure, and I realize what I've thrown away now, and I've reached an emotional realization, and that carries him into Act 3 so he can get the farmer back safely and live happy ever after. So that was one problem we had, a story problem particularly. We had many, many others, uh, which I won't go into. Um, I'll talk about a couple of other things as well in there, which are quite interesting. We use a thing that um, we call, or is called, a charged icon. I don't know if you've ever come across this concept before. So a charged icon is something in the story which has more meaning than its physical object suggests. Can any of you think what that charged icon might be in this story? Picture? What's yes. So in fact, the, the main one is the picture of the sheep. You're absolutely right. And that figures all the way through the story and becomes very, very important at the very end of the story when the farmer, they use that picture to bring the farmer back because he's got amnesia and he's got memory loss. It's the picture that brings him back because he remembers the happy days. So we put that idea right up front and we use it all the way through the movie. That's called a charged icon. Now, 
It's a bit of a scruffy process trying to make a film. Things don't always work the way you want. We actually had two charged daikons, and we talked about it because it wasn't, it was a bit scruffy. But we actually also, um, the tape machine that plays the song is also a charged icon. That is, becomes important later on as well because um, Sean finds it and he uses it to raise the morale of the sheep who are all lost in the city and they're all uh, down at, you know, under the arches and everything and they're very sad. And he uses that tape machine. He remembers the song and he sings the song and the song drifts across the city to the farmer and it makes the farmer remember something about his past because he's got amnesia. So those are two charged icons. Um, which were helpful in terms of addressing the theme. Um, something else that might be interesting to talk about uh, is a comedy. Well, two things I want to talk about. One is set pieces. I mentioned set pieces. Could you just suggest uh, a couple of set pieces that were in that first act? Any, anything you thought was a set piece, anybody? Just shout out. It's, not, it's more like a, a piece of action or a piece of comedy that is self-contained, that you could say, yeah, I could imagine that as a self-contained play. So running gag is slightly different. We use that as well, which is like where we call back ideas. But a set piece is more like the, uh, yeah, that was kind of a set piece. You're right. You're absolutely right. Because we, we, we cut that many different ways. And we, in the end, we fix that in the edit. Yes, that's a set piece, definitely. Um, the other big one in there is the caravan getting falling away. Because you can, you can imagine, you go to a story artist. All right, I want you to help me working on this set piece. And the set piece is the caravan, the story is the caravan runs away from the farm. But you know, we can put any number of jokes in there and we can do it any number of different ways. The story is the same. The caravan comes away from the farm. The set pieceness of it means you can sort of almost explore one idea within that. Um, it's kind of a little bit hard to explain. Another set piece, I think, is um, when the baddie, Trumper he's called, uh, tries to catch the sheep in the bus station because, again, it's a very simple... Set pieces usually have a very simple premise, which is they're trying to get away, he's trying to catch them. Will he see them? Will he find them? Will he catch them? And so that's a set piece. So again, you can explore that set piece. And I should say at this point how important it is, how much work is done uh, with story artists helping us with the jokes, uh, contributing things. I was just um, saying a bit earlier... Um, you know, uh, that um, when I worked on Madagascar and I wrote many drafts of that, um, we didn't come up with any penguins. The penguins came from a story artist. So that's how important, you know, once the penguins had come into the film, they were then incorporated into the story. But that shows you how the story artist can really bring stuff. But the story artists need to know what the story is. So it's great if you can say, the sheep are trying to get away and... Trump is chasing them, and then we can explore how we can do that. So that's set pieces. So the other thing I'm going to talk about is um, comedy. Uh, I know it's mentioned about talking about comedy. Comedy is a very difficult thing and a very subjective thing. Um, but there's a couple of places in there where I think you laughed, which is interesting. Um, and I'll talk about those. One of those is uh, the moment when Sean bribes the duck. Do you remember that? So let's look at that. Let's analyze that for a second. Why was that funny? So the Americans have a phrase. I'm going to give away one of these now. Oh, you've seen it earlier, the Hollywood ones. They have this phrase, the drop. The comic drop. And what they mean by that is, what's the premise of the comedy? What's making it funny? What's the drop? They often say, actually, what's the drop of that scene? So 
let's look at the duck moment and discuss what is the drop of that. Does anybody want to just throw out why they think it might be funny? Yeah. And what particular human behavior? Mafia, kind of bribery. So there's that, that, that's, we, we, you know, I was talking to you about, you know, seen a fair, seen a fair, and about, you know, the metaphor. So when that happens, we've seen that played out many times, you know, uh, in the Sopranos or whatever, a bit of bribery, money changing hands. But it's a duck, that's the drop. It's a duck, and it's bread, and it's a sheep. And that's what makes it funny. Um, and so that's a good example of having a sort of strong comic drop, um, which is why we're laughing. There's another uh, example, um, which is uh, when the sheep are in the uh, kitchen getting ready for their sort of feast, um, there was a, a moment you all laughed, which was um, when uh, one of the sheep gets iced up in the fridge. That was the last moment of that scene. Do you know what that's called? Anybody? So it's actually another of those Hollywood terms. We, we've got a British version. It's called a button. Uh, we call it a tag. We, we, when I was writing gags, we would say, what's the tag? And what it is, is, or a topper. Uh, and actually, comedy writing is quite structured and quite, um, quite an art in itself. And so what you would always try and do is, you would always try and leave a scene with a little event, a little comic event. Uh, and, and sometimes those little comic events, um, like that one, get a good laugh, and they lift you into the next scene. So we were kind of very conscious of that. So you'd go, okay, you'd watch a scene. We know what the story is. All the other things are working well, but we need a we need a button. We need a little idea at the end of it. And then there's a you know. So that's something we would do. Um, the other thing I think was interesting was gags that come from character generally work more. So yeah, you know, Caravan Chase is funny. There's some things happening in it which are pretty funny, but. Um, the uh, some like the duck joke was funny because it came from the, the character of the duck. This, you got the sense this duck was a little bit shifty. Um, when bits to stop. Sorry, go on. Yes. Okay, good. That's interesting. That was funny. By the way, we had to check uh, if jump counting sheep jumping over a gate was a f international, and it is. Apparently, do, do Belgian people uh, count sheep as well? Yeah, they do. Luckily, so. Yeah, uh, that is that, I'm glad you found that funny. Um, I think that's funny because it's intriguing. You don't know what the plan is. And then the plan, when it's revealed, is satisfying. Yes, that's right. That's another good point, actually. Sometimes you can use... That's a good use of narrative and comedy to working together. And the best thing of all is narrative, comedy, and character are all working together to push your, push your story forward. Uh, that's when um, you, know, you can really get some, some narrative traction, as I was calling it earlier. Now... What you can also get, as well as that, uh, is sometimes you get just stuff going on, like when the goat eats the bit of paper. Another, and we call that, you can call that B-roll. So I've heard that phrase used by Americans. We don't use it very much, but B-roll. It's like, it's not integral to the story, but what it does is color. You know, if you watch a film like, if you watch, say, The Minions or something, there's loads of that in there. Little B-roll moments that just keep it active and colorful. So you can see how granular, how we work into the scenes and the ideas, constantly asking ourselves, can we make this better in any way? Um, so that's something to talk about. Um, what else can I talk about it? Um, I'll tell you one thing which is interesting, which is, um, you know, about how these things are never clean the way you want them. So the scene with Bitzer, where he goes into the um, hospital, discovers that the farmer has got memory loss. Well, we discover the farmer's got memory loss. The doctors come and examine him. 
Uh, that was later on earlier. We had that later on. We almost had it in Act 2, but we felt we were missing the farmer's story. So we pulled it forward. So in fact, we had those three chapters we talked about, which was the day off, home alone, into the city. That's all Sean's story. And then we put this Farmer B story in, which is that we want to find out that he's lost his memory earlier, because it added more anticipation in the story. We kind of felt like, okay, oh my God, we already know there's a problem with the farmer. How is Sean going to sort it out? So that happened quite late on. We actually shot it. We, we, we moved it forward. So it's, it's a, often a, um, can be, you know, a, a, a lot of the storytelling can also be done in the edit. Um, and uh, I'll just tell you this um, for no particular reason, which is the doctor in the... Um, in the scene with the farmer is, uh, was based on my son, who's a doctor. <laughs> and uh, I got him to record it, so it's his voice as well. So uh, um, uh, let me think, is there anything else I want to talk about with that? Or anything you want to talk about with that? Um, with that section, let's have a look. How do we stop the, the beat? Yeah, well, I guess, I guess you just, that's, a, that's the craft of it, isn't it? You have to watch it and go, you know, it's, sometimes we do that. We go, you know what, there's just too many jokes there and it's, it's interfering in the, in the narrative. It's a very, very subtle process. Um, it's really, uh, you have to do it, you know, you're constantly having to work, work with it. And sometimes you don't get it right, to be honest with you. Um, there's plenty of very successful films where I think the story's a bit, a bit wonky, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem to matter. People still like it. Um, so those are the things you work on. The thing is to be... Um, aware to be that disciplined that you're thinking about the story on all those levels all the time right back down to the DNA the theme the characters everything like that and all the way up to the gags the, the buttons the tags the b-roll everything like that you've got to be in charge of that whole process so you're controlling what's on screen it's very difficult so um, uh, you know uh, that's why you do, you do it with lots of people, and even sometimes then, when we're working with lots of people, um, it's it's, we still struggle to do it. But um, I think I've probably said enough about that. Um, I'm gonna, I think we're going to talk about a, a Q&A. Oh, no, I know, sorry. The next thing I want to do is, just to, uh, before we get into the Q&A, I want to talk to you about, um, about Hollywood a little bit, five minutes about Hollywood. So um, I'm just going to put that thing back up there. Hang on one second, please. Sorry about your eyes, sorry. All right. So when you go for a Hollywood meeting, I hope some of you do end up going for Hollywood meetings. By the way, Hollywood's an interesting place. There's lots of uh, you know, Europeans there and everything. It's a, it's a mix. There's a kind of, we have to be careful in Europe. We get very snobby about Hollywood. We think it's all commercial and you know, shallow people and with uh, permatans. That's mainly true. That's mainly true. But it's not entirely true. There's some really brilliant people there. And there's some really brilliant things going on, and there's some really smart people there as well. And what tends to happen is you go to a meeting, and it's interesting, there's usually an older person, and they're an idiot, and they're in charge. And then there's some young person that's from Harvard, and they're brilliant. So what you have to do is you have to write down what the younger person says, because they're smart, and nod politely when the older person speaks, because they're in charge. So you have to kind of learn how to navigate it. Um, very quickly talk about notes, you know, how you deal with notes. Some of you must be getting notes uh, if you're professional writers. Um, I always think uh, my attitude to notes is um, sometimes, you, you know, you have to, first of all, open your mind because there's a, a natural psychological process that when everybody criticizes us, we don't like it. Piss off, what do you know? So it's, it hurts us to be criticized, even by people we like. 
So what, as I said, you've got to try and look for the, what the problem is that's causing the note, but, but you want to resolve it uh, rather than them. Now, there's three kinds of notes, particularly in Hollywood. There's stupid notes, there's good notes, and then there's ones that are in between that don't matter. So what I always used to do, I'd get a big set of notes, and I'd go through them, and there would be some stupid notes there, and they were the problem ones, because they usually came from the guy that was in charge. So I put those to, or, or woman, so I put those to one side. Then you'd get the good notes. They're good notes, so I'm going to use that to make my script better. Then you had the ones where it'd be like, I'm wondering if he should call Mary Margaret. You go, okay. So then you get on the phone with these people or whatever. So you go, okay, thanks for the notes, guys. Uh, really interesting. Um, these are really good notes, blah, blah, blah. You know about Mary and Mar You wanted to call Mary Margaret? <sighs> all right, fine, you win. Let's call her Margaret. So they're, all, they're feeling pleased with themselves. And then you go, but these other five stupid notes are not going to do that. I am going to call Mary Margaret. So you kind of, you weed through all the notes and you take the ones that, you know, you, you fight your battles where you can. Um, but you make sure, first of all, that you know what the stupid notes are and what are the good notes. Uh, because what you don't want to do is to ignore. If you ignore, 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 go away, I'm brilliant, I'm a genius, you know what you're talking about. The, the audience will tell you when they see it on the cinema or wherever it is or on the TV. They'll tell you. Um, so it's better to know a bit earlier. So that's what I think about notes. Now, you're in a meeting. I've already told you about Comic Drop. What do you think? Anybody know what four quadrant means? No idea. Mark, this is a great movie. I think it's a four quadrant movie. Well, you're, you're half right in that you've, it's, about the, it's about getting everybody. It's universal. I don't know what the quadrants are. No one will tell me. Uh, they seem to be all endless quadrants, but um, there's four of them. Uh, they may be that. I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. Let's take a film like um, Toy Story. Who's seen Toy Story? Pretty much everyone. Who's seen Shrek? Pretty much everyone. Now, in the old days of Disney, when they made a film, like 101 Dalmatians, it was a children's film. And the kids would go and see it, a kid's party or whatever. Shrek comes out, and not only the kids go and see it, and their parents go and see it, teenagers go and see it, couples go and see it, people without kids go and see it. That's a four-quadrant movie. That is a sweet spot for Hollywood. They want more of those. Um, they love those. That's why we get so many Marvel universes and so on. If they can find, I mean, Marvel universes aren't four quadrant, but they do. They are very successful. Okay, so the weekend stack. Anyone? What's a weekend stack? Who wants to hazard a guess? Is it? Yeah, sort of. So the weekend. So this is why it's important. You know, I said to you, your first draft should read like a dream. It's because in Hollywood, particularly, you've got a lot of executives, and they have to do a lot of reading. There's a lot of data they have to get through, rewrites, blah, blah. And so they get to Friday afternoon, they're pretty tired. And then because they're starting out and they need to be keen, they get given 15 scripts. Read these over the weekend. That's your weekend stack, literally a stack of scripts. Now, if your script is number 10 or 11 in that, in that stack, now you know why they, they need to be interested because they're, they're, they're already bored shitless. They've, written, they've read eight bad scripts and they get to yours. They're in a bad mood because they can't do their washing because they've got to read all these scripts by Monday morning. That's their weekend stack. So imagine when you're writing your first draft, you're at the bottom of the weekend stack. And hopefully that will make you just sell it a little bit harder. 
Okay, thread the needle. This is a new one. I was over there just uh, end of last year. And they started, this is the thing about Hollywood. They always have new ones and they all use it. They all started telling me to thread, Mark, thread the needle on this. You just thread the needle. Go to... No, no, it means, uh, it's odd, isn't it? It could, be, it could easily mean that. It means you've got to be very precise. So we've got a rewrite to do here in this scene, and you need to thread the needle on it. It needs to be very precise and very surgical. Shit the bed. Oh, God, we had Barry do it, and he shit the bed. Does anybody know what that means? It's fairly obvious. Yeah, they failed horribly. It's a really horrible phrase, isn't it? But they all use it now. Oh man, he shit the bed. Um, Shonky's a new one. It's just started being used. Is it good or bad? It's bad. Shonky is bad. A bit shonky. Download. Now you all think download is a is a computer term. Not in Hollywood. They download you. So they say, Mark, can I download you on where we are with this project? And you're like, and I go, Are you saying? Do you mean? Can you tell me? where we are with this project. Yeah, sure. <laughs> pop. pop, 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 pop. This is one that got very popular for a while. It's a bit out of fashion now. Uh, a script needs to pop. Any ideas what that means? Uh, it's not standout, actually, which would be better. It just needs to, it needs to click. It needs to work. It doesn't quite, it's not in the pocket. Musicians talk about it. I'm a musician and we talk about in the pocket, meaning like when the rhythm is really on the, beat. And in Hollywood, they say, this, that character's not popping. It means that character's not right yet. Um, so they, it's an odd phrase. Tent pole, more sort of, uh, more of uh, about the studio system. Now, does anybody know what a tent pole is? Yes, it is, actually. Yeah, yeah. The tent poles, the weather studio, I mean, this is all changing, as I said, as we speak. But, when, you know, a year ago, uh, you would have these tent pole movies, um, these big Marvel movies or whatever, the Star Wars franchise, and the, and the studio would build their slate around those movies. And then what's happened in the last five, ten years, really, it's changing again because of Netflix stuff, but is the, uh, the mid-range movies disappeared. So you had the big ones, $200 million will make us a billion dollars. Star Wars, that's fine, that's a tentpole. Disruptive, because you're going to go and see that at the cinema. We're not going to spend $50 million. That's just money down the, down the drain. We used to do that in the old days. We might spend $5 million. So those smaller movies get made because sometimes you can, you know, there's a kind of business model for them. But $50 million, hmm. Uh, but maybe now Netflix and Amazon are spending money, that sort of money, on some of their movies. So that's okay. Uh, this one is one of the most chilling phrases I've ever heard in Hollywood. Non-execution dependent. Anybody want to have a, have a guess at what that is? Okay, I'm, oh yeah, go on. Yeah, basically, it's a kind of, it's a kind of uh, Hollywood way of saying it doesn't matter how bad it is. So they'll say, we're making, you know, I don't know, it'll be some, it might be some huge project, like, I mean, I mean I'm not saying this about Harry Potter, by the way, because Harry Potter's great, but if they were making Harry Potter, an executive would say, it's non-execution dependent. It's Harry Potter, for God's sake. They'll just come and watch it anyway. You know, they'll get that first weekend what they want. Um, but there's a kind of cynicism to it, because it's basically saying to you, it doesn't really matter if it's not very good, because it's non-execution dependent. Uh, a shingle is a difficult one. I'll jump straight in with that one. A shingle is this, uh, on the studio lot, so lots of little companies that are like, 
little sort of um, mini parasite companies that have deals with the studios. And they're usually in these little uh, bungalow buildings. I love studios in Hollywood. There's, something, there's a great history there. I'm always excited when I go onto a studio lot. Um, it's a great feeling. People walking around with kind of sets. It's really proper. It's still like it always has been. And um, a shingle is these uh, bungalows. Um, and, they, and they're called shingles. And so the companies have been called shingles. So they'll often use the phrase to say, you know, oh, we're working with a shingle at the moment. I, I, I went uh, a while back. I was on Fox Studios. I was working with Fox Studios. And um, I found out that The Simpsons was made there. And I thought, I've, I love The Simpsons so much. I've got to go, I've got to pay homage to The Simpsons. So I went to The Simpsons shingle, and it was a bungalow. <laughs> and it was like, it had a, like a, um, a computer in it, and there was like a, a coffee machine. And I was like, ah, oh, that's fantastic. That was great. Uh, it was like anywhere else, to be honest with you. Uh, okay, this is another one. I, lo I love this one. Blow smoke up your ass. If an American says, they're blowing smoke up your ass, what, what, are, they, what are they talking about in Hollywood? Yes, exactly. They're bullshitting you. They are. So often you'll get in a meeting and it's like, Mark, you know, we're very excited. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. We're really excited to be working with you. And by the way, when someone says that, they are blowing smoke up your ass. That's the thing. Button, I've told you about. Uh, disconnect is an odd one as well. It's another unpleasant one uh, that they use, and it means um, I don't get it. So when you're pitching an idea or a story to Hollywood executives, I have to tell you, the sh to my shame, I use it myself now, um, you'll go, that's a disconnect for me. I don't get that. That's a disconnect. I, 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 you've, you've lost me. So it's quite a useful phrase. But um, I've left, left the last one to last, because it's so appropriate, uh, a hard out. This is a, a, a new one that they've been using recently. Um, now, whenever you go to a meeting, somebody says to you, uh, I got a hard out at 5.30. And it's pretty obvious, it means they have to leave at 5.30. So I think it's a very useful phrase because it means they can get rid of writers uh, quite soon. Uh, sorry, Mark, I would love to carry on talking, but I got a hard out. So um, I've got a hard out now because I think it's time to move on to the q and I've talked long enough. It's your turn to ask questions. Um, so I'm going to ask one of the guys to come up and, and organize that. So if anybody wants to ask any questions about what they've heard today, anything they didn't un understand or want to go over, or any other questions, please feel free. Yes, sir. By the way, that, that's a good point. I mean, the TV series never uses writing. Partly that's to do with um, just because it's international. But making an 80-minute story without, there were some things we just couldn't, we had to, we, like the, the amnesia. We thought we just got to write memory loss. So you're right, we did cheat. We did cheat. And in the second one, Farmageddon, we're going to show you hopefully a little teaser later. Uh, we cheat even more. So I apologize for that. But I think, I, think it was, uh, I, think it, I think we just thought in the end it's better to make the story clear. Because we had another big argument, by the way, about lyrics. Because we have lyrics on it. And some people really hated having lyrics. Because they said, oh, no, you've got people talking in songs. Uh, but I think we got away with it generally. So any other uh, questions? Um, within the writing, how did you handle the fact that sometimes the animals, they act like animals and sometimes they act like humans? And how did you, um, yeah, how did you... Yeah, how do we deal with that? Yeah. Are there rules about it? Yes. That's a very good question. Uh, it's very important when you talk, particularly about uh, animal worlds, a lot of animation seems to be about animals, about how the rules work. And we do have a conversation around whether they're kind of effectively, are they... Um, 
people in animal costumes, like in Zootopia, they live in a city and everything, um, or uh, are they more animalistic, like in Lion King? So, you know, do they use props and so on? So we do have all those conversations. And then sometimes you just, you do, to be honest, you go for the joke. I don't know if you guys know Bojack Horseman. Bojack Horseman is fantastic for me, because um, uh, if those guys were here, they would just be shaking their head at me all the way through. Because if you think about Bojack Horseman, they've pitched it this way. They said, we've got this idea for a show set in Hollywood. Okay. Uh, the lead character's a horse. That's good, yeah. And then the agent's a cat. Oh, I get it. It's an animal world. No, it's not, it's not an animal world, no. There's humans in it as well. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, so I get it. So there's an animal world with humans, and then uh, like I say, like maybe the animals are like animals. No, they're not like animals. Well, sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. It's what we feel like, and it's a brilliant show. So I think on Sean, there's a little bit of that as well, which is we kind of we have some. We, we it's more high concept in that in Lion King, no one picked up a, a weapon or anything like that. They were more naturalistic. But in Shaun the Sheep, we often have discussions like he likes, he has his food, which is the, um, the sheep food, but he also eats pizzas, you know. So we kind of, we play down the line of that. And I haven't got a clean answer for you, you know, apart from I think we do it on a basis like if it feels right tonally, we do it. If it feels wrong, we don't do it. But that's for, I mean, for you as a writer that you, you do it when you feel it, but how do you convince the people no, 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 I think only it's, it's every show and every intellectual property is different. You have to make your own, you have to do it based on the, proj on the project. So, you know, it wouldn't work on other projects. You know, it would, be, it would feel very wrong in, you know, uh, Lion King if they started doing stuff like that. It just wouldn't work. It's like, you know, so it, it is partly to do with how you design the world. It goes back to what I was saying about mapping your world. Is that we shorn the sheep, the world that was created was one where you can kind of bend the rules about that a little bit. Uh, but there are some odd things like bits that doesn't drive. He runs the farm and he's got a clipboard and he can write, but he's not allowed to drive because he's a dog. So it's, there's some odd things, but um, I think you have to sort of take every project as it comes. Hi. Uh, I was wondering how do the writers and the story artists work together? Is there a lot of ping-ponging or...? Um, a lot of ping-ponging. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'll tell you what, it's interesting. You know, the, the, the Disney tradition, I'll talk about Hollywood first, and I'll talk about the UK and Ardman. The Disney tradition, as you know, you know, was Walt Disney, and it was all on the boards. And he would like, uh, you know, he was brilliant at pitching, and he was brilliant at, you know, he'd tell these stories. And he would, they were no writers, really. They were just, it was all done on the boards. And there's a little bit of that tradition there, and I struggled when I was a writer in... Um, at DreamWorks and things, and I worked on Romeo and Juliet and struggled a bit with that as well, where you would write a scene and the story artist would drop it in a bin, pretty much. Go, yeah. Anyway, and that was, like, that was wrong because you're in charge of the story and you're in charge of you know, the things that happen in that story. Um, but uh, what they do bring is they bring, loads of, they bring loads of comedy ideas, they bring loads of characters and all sorts of stuff to it. So uh, the relationship is one where you should work together uh, the hierarchy in uh, Ardman is clearer, which is, I think, at Ardman, the writer is probably a bit higher in the hierarchy. In, in something like DreamWorks, uh, I can't speak for Disney, but the writer, there's a, there's a character called a head of story. That's a big job at Disney. If you're on a film and you're head of story, um, then that's a very, quite a powerful job. You're in charge of all the story artists. And I used to sometimes sit, you know, you'd be in a room with the head of story, and they kind of felt like, 
they could piss higher than the rice, if you know what I mean. So there was, there was, there was a little bit of that going on. But on the whole, uh, I think it's a very, very uh, um, you know, fruitful relationship. And um, I think it is good to go backwards and forwards. So it always includes stuff that the, you like from the story artist and say, that's wrong tonally or that changes the story. So it's a good, it can be a very good relationship. Thank you. Hi, um, my question was, um, sometimes you do sequels and uh, would, is it easier for you writers to create a universe like a map, you, you, you talked about mapping a world, uh, is it easier when you have to scratch it from nowhere, from nothing, or when you already have something settled and then you just have to create something new out of it? Um, I think... Uh It's harder in a way because um, the first, the original movie, the first one, you can establish, you know, you establish this thematic idea in the world and you kind of, to a certain extent, you build it, all the characters around the theme. But then the second and third one, you've got to find a new theme. You've got to take it somewhere else. So there's always that trouble. Um, I'm currently working on the Paddington franchise. Do anybody know Paddington movies? So there's the first Paddington movie, which was very much about that as a metaphor for a refugee, I guess, coming into the, you know, into, uh, into the UK and everything, and Paddington finding a home. And a lot of the ideas are built around that. That came from the original book. Uh, the second one, they had to find a whole new theme and a whole new idea, which they did brilliantly, which was actually um, a bit like Despicable Me. I think the theme was, if you look for the good in people, then, then you'll find it. Um, so it does create problems. Um, And I think that some franchises like Home Alone were a disaster because they just couldn't get away from the first one. They just repeated the movie. Uh, and then some franchises, and I'm, I'm going off a bit away from animation now, but like um, the Alien, second Alien movie is fantastic. That was James Cameron taking over the franchise. He did something completely different with it. Um, so I think uh, it's probably... In a way, it's harder, and we're just working on uh, Farmageddon, Shaun the Sheep 2, which we're going to show you a little teaser of. Um, and it has been hard because we have to sort of find, you know, we have to sort of find new territory for the story. So, um, yeah, I think it's almost harder. What's that? With aliens. It is with aliens. Yeah, yeah, it is with aliens. Spoiler alert. Hello. Hello. Um, What do you do with the um, visual aspect of animation? Because there's a lot of the story is linked with the visual, yeah. and also in animation, yes. uh, it can be very different from one man to another when you are the scripting, uh, writing uh, phase. Yes, I understand what you're saying. How do you, how do you create visual, visual ideas with a script? Because obviously there's a kind of old-fashioned view that a script writer is just doing the dialogue. Uh, which is not true, you're, you're constructing the whole universe. I think sometimes what you can do is you can create an invitation to great visual things. So you're right in that obviously it affects who draws it, uh, the look of it. You know, like I know when I worked on Madagascar, in my mind, I had a certain look. Um, and then when they designed the film, they went for this squash and stretch effect, much more cartoony than I'd imagined. But it works very well for that story. And... Um, So it didn't stop me coming up with those set pieces I told you about. It doesn't stop you coming up with the visual ideas. They, they, they're alive in your head. And it's really more a question of, uh, of how somebody else interprets them. So it, um, I think it's, uh, as always, it's a collaboration. That's, that's always the case with animation. Uh, what about the uh, sound effects and the composers? Are they involved before the production or only afterwards? 
Well, we do a, we have a reel. An, do you know what an animatic is or a reel? You probably use the same thing, uh, which is kind of like a rough version of the story, which is on, you know, 2D storyboards. We have a temp, so we put temp sound effects on that. We have temp dialogue, what we call scratch dialogue. And then we have temp music, and generally we use music from um, other films or whatever, and then we bring the composer in, uh, and um, a bit later in the process when we started to animate, because you, know, you can't have the composer for years and years. Now, it's a very interesting thing about music, because music is very important, I think, for uh, all films, but especially for feature animation, in terms of how it tells you about the emotional ideas and the thematic ideas, and even especially for us, because we haven't got any dialogue. An interesting thing happened with the artist. Uh, I presume you've all seen the artist, which is a brilliant film. I think it's a French film, isn't it? Um, and that was a silent movie. Um, and there was, they used temp music, and there was a piece of music on there which came from another film. And when the composer did his score, which I think is brilliant because I listened to it a lot when I was working on Sean to in, as inspiration, um, there was one piece of music that the director just couldn't, didn't like the composer's version, and he stuck to the original music, which was a piece of music from an old black and white movie. And that was quite controversial, and I, it's an interesting thing to do. And I know why the director did it, because you fall in love with the temp music, but you have to let the composer do their job, or get another composer, but you have to let them stand, come in and do their work, and you have to learn to, to kind of love their music all over again. It's very hard, but, but generally the composers will come in later in the process. Hello, uh, could you please elaborate uh, a bit more on the uh, drop button B story? Because I think those are things that very few people talk about. And the okay. craft, how do you gather it? And yeah, all right, okay. I mean, I think, but by the way, these, you know, you might have your own language. Everyone has their own kind of language. Uh, there's no, uh, these words are just words that get used. Um, as I said, like, I've got a whole load of language that I use from my comedy toolbox. Um, like ruffling your reveal and all this kind of stuff. And um, uh, so to, to go through it again, so the comedy drop um, is really, uh, it's a quite a difficult one to grasp, but it's really, if you can imagine it as a, like the drop, the sort of a metaphor of a drop is like, you've got one idea, which is like um, a mafia, and then the drop is why it's not the same. The drop is it's ducks rather than humans. So um, it's about what's undercutting the idea. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a something you have to get used to, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. All right, okay, how do I, how do I acquire those skills? Well, it goes back to the, the toolbox conversation, which is I worked in other areas of comedy. I worked with people that, that, that had worked on other movies and things like that, and they brought some of those things with them. The concept of a comedy drop, I knew that, um, but I didn't know it. We used to say, what's the British version, we'd say, what's the conceit? What's the conceit of that sketch or whatever? Um, so I already knew those things, I think, uh, just from doing the work, but I think it was the language. Uh, what the Americans are very good at is finding these words that you can attach to these processes, which really help you think about these processes. So, um, you know, I already knew that you should finish a sketch or a scene with a, with a joke, and then somebody said, well, you can call that a button. So I kind of, okay, I, I do it naturally, but now I know it's, I can do it consciously. And that's the difference. Some of these things you might do anyway because you're funny people, but when you become conscious about it, you become much more disciplined about it. So it's useful to know, that, to know, to know how it's all working.
don't know if that answers the question at all, but. Yes, um, I was wondering, uh, is here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice for um, animation students who are aspiring writers, because I'm not sure how I would best go about getting into that part of the animation yeah. world. Well, I suppose the first question is, uh, do you want to be, I mean, it's not a binary question, but whether you want to be an animator or whether you want to be a writer, because actually, um, you know, being an animator is a full-time job and takes up a lot of expertise and craft, and I'm sure you've had master classes in that as well. Um, I think the only thing I'd say is about being a writer is, first of all, you can just start writing. Um, you should, um, you know, uh, read other things. Read some of the books I mentioned. Um, there's other books on craft and writing and so on. Um, and sort of just try, try, try and do it. Try and do it. Um, and then make your own short films or whatever. It's always a good place to start. Um, as I said, the main thing, and the, and the main thing I'd say to you as a new writer, as an animator, I'd say, first of all, respect the writing process, because a lot of animators don't. They think, yeah, I'll just write some funny things. The animation takes me months. I have to work till 10 o'clock at night. They put amazing commitment into the animation. Yeah, the writing, that's, I did that over the weekend. No, you've got to work as hard on the ideas and the writing as you have on the animation. The second thing is don't overcomplicate it. Find the elegant solutions. Don't keep adding, 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 adding. So, so you've got to you know, um, test it to destruction. Uh, and the third thing I'd say is don't be afraid to show it to people People you trust, I should say, you know, people you trust that aren't going to just score points against you. Um, you, want, you want people that are trying to help you, uh, and so you want to, you know, show it to them, and they say, oh, I thought that was funny or not funny, and then you kind of learn from people's reaction. So just, just go on and do it. We've got a question there as well afterwards, just in the middle there. Okay. Um, I have a question about rhythm, because the rhythm in the, the film is very specific and very important. Is yeah. it all on the page already, or do you like test the rhythm with an animatic, or is it editing? Or I think sometimes uh, uh, well that probably came from the direction more than the writing. Uh, I think, um, and the editing, to be honest with you, but whether we discussed, we felt it was funnier. But what is interesting is, t you know, there's a whole conversation around comedy timing. And comedy timing is a fascinating thing um, because uh, you get it wrong by six frames, something's not funny. And you move something and it suddenly is funny. And uh, it's a really strange, strange nuanced thing. And when you watch the silent comedy greats like Charlie Chaplin, you really learn to understand how brilliant their timing was. So timing is something I think is a performance thing, if I'm honest with you. I don't think it is on the page. Uh, what's on the page, again, to go back to that phrase, is an invitation to do something like that. You might even mention it you know, in your description or something. But more likely, you've said, you've, you've done a, a load of stuff about, say, uh, the, the daily routine and how hard it is, and you've written the jokes. And it may be that they've bored the jokes up and then they've gone, oh, maybe we can, the editor's gone, maybe we can, we can create a nice rhythm with that to really go with the music, which you know, comes in quite late. So I think that's how that would happen. Um, I just had a question about uh, how you uh, work with your um, texts, yeah. um, about the destructions. Uh, how uh, can I uh, test the destruction in my texts? Like a, a real example. You're talking about uh, structure or test of destruction? Uh, testing destruction. Testing the structure. Yeah, test yeah, the structure. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're two different things. So test of destruction is just a phrase that means just give it a good kicking. Uh, that's your idea to see if it's strong enough to work on. The structure, the four walls and the roof that I talked about, yes. that was the, the, the house analogy. Um, I think, how do you test it out? Well, I guess um, you apply it like a roadmap in terms of, uh, there's a kind of very practical way of doing it, which is, you know, how many pages. Like, if you've got an act one and it's 50 pages long, I mean, Tarantino could probably get away with it, but you probably, got, you probably made a mistake there, something's gone wrong. You know, there's quite a conventional structure uh, with pages or even with, like, how long things are. Um, but you, can, you should know in your own mind, if, if you had a script, and I said to you, this is your script, tell me where those key moments are. Where's the end of Act One? Where's the midpoint? Where's the dark night of the soul? Where's, you should know that. And if you don't know that, that's going to be part of the problem. So as much as anything, it's understanding where you think those things happen and, and what they're doing. So you have to kind of be very aware of what you're trying to do with your script. Okay, and um, how do you kick your um, script? Kick the ideas, you mean? How do you kick it? Yeah, how kick do you it. kick okay. it? What I mean by that is it's, a, it's, it's a, a colorful metaphor. I don't literally mean that you take a hammer to it and smash up your laptop. What I mean by that is you have one idea, and this, the, the phrase test to destruction comes from, I think it's the aircraft industry or somewhere like that, where they or, a car, the motor, or the motor industry, where they will do that. They will say, how strong is this car? We'll put it into a, a laboratory, and then we'll basically throw things at it, we'll wind, we'll kick it, we'll attack it with the hammers, and when it falls apart, that tells us about how strong it is. So what I'm saying with test to destruction, is a, what I mean by that is, how strong is your idea? Uh, and I think you have to do it by asking yourself, can it be done a different way? Is there anything else that's too similar to it? You tell some people your idea and they say, I don't get it. Those kind of things where you just explore the idea a bit more. You say, well, maybe we could do it a different way. Maybe it's, uh, it's, it's not this. Maybe it's not those two characters. It's two other characters. Maybe it's not set in that world. It's set in a different world. You explore it. You can always come back to what you've got. What you don't do is you accept it as it is without exploring it and sort of, you know, that's the kicking. That's the just, is it really good? Is it really good? Is it really simple? And you can say it to anyone, because all those big ideas I talked about, all the Pixar and Disney ideas, when you talk about those ideas, they just, Kung Fu Panda, I'm not saying it's the best movie in the world, by the way, don't get me wrong, but Kung Fu Panda, I mean, it's just, you get it. It's kind of like, okay. Uh, so sometimes, I mean, that's a very simplistic version, but it's really about making sure your idea is as good as it can be. Got one there and one here, yeah, sorry. You first. Well, um, uh, I learned your whole work with a board before yep. you actually start writing. So uh, my question one is, can you show us boards right. <laughs> of your scripts? And where actually are you happy enough with the board when you actually start writing? Okay, when you say the board, do you mean like... The, the cardboard with all the elements, Oh, the you mean like the cards and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Cards. Yeah, I mean, I... I uh, there's a question about whether you use cards, you know, to Do put the story like up. That? Uh, DreamWorks, uh, they did in the old days. Um, they would use images um, to kind of uh, help to define what the story was, what the important part of the story was. To a certain extent, you hold that in your head anyway. 
the, you know, there's cards in your head. Like Tom Stoppard says he has the cards in his head. Everyone has a different process. Um, I, uh, I think, when do you start writing? I suppose the answer is when you feel that you've got uh, a story that you can tell, that you've worked through. I, some people like novelists sometimes say, I sit down and then the characters write the thing themselves and you know, it's wonderful and they're like playing the piano. And it's, like, it's not like that for me. For me, I have to kind of design everything. I almost feel like an engineer sometimes, designing the story, designing the characters, putting it all there, and then you have to get in it and put the flesh and blood on it and the color on it. Uh, and I think that's quite a late process. And sometimes it's dictated to you by the studio saying, where's the script? So it's not even your choice. It's them going, write it. So then you just have to get on and write it. Okay, thanks. Uh, question there. Um, I was wondering, uh, how does the process go as in uh, establishing, for establishing the comedy when you have multiple writers? Does, do the writers get um, chosen for their type of comedy or does it come from the director? Or? Um, well, you, uh, part is what you can afford, I guess. I mean, in the, in the big American rooms, they get chosen for their comedy skills and they cast the room. So they'll talk about, um, you know, maybe a sniper who'll be somebody who kind of puts in certain kinds of lines. Uh, you know, you might have somebody who's more like, um, you know, clever Harvard-type person that's good at sort of, uh, you know, working stuff out. And there's somebody who's crazy, who says crazy stuff, and they like that. So you kind of have different kind of personalities in the room. But I think the most important thing is that they all work well with each other. What you don't want in any kind of room, any kind of creative room, is politics. Politics kills the process. And, you know, you do get it, unfortunately. You do get it sometimes where you get in a room and someone's like, that's a good idea, but I'm going to kill it because I don't like them. Yeah, I didn't, that wasn't very funny. And what you want is to be in a room where the people in that room want this idea to be as good as it can be, as funny as it can be, you know, as emotional as it can be, and they're all helping you to do that. So uh, casting the room is very important. The directors are involved in that usually. Um, but, uh, you know, running a room is a great skill to learn as a writer, to know how to run a room. And as I said, it's something you can do for yourselves. I know there's not, there's not always, you know, you don't have the resources necessarily uh, that, that DreamWorks has or Disney have to buy in expensive writers and, you know, uh, but what you can do is you get people together that you know and you like and you trust and you can say, can you help me on my project? I'll help you on your project and I'm going to run the room. I'm going to give you tasks to help me with. This scene is struggling with. Can you help me with some jokes here? And hopefully you can help each other. And I do that with you know, friends of mine where um, we help each other out. And obviously it's better if we can get paid for it. But sometimes you just do it because they're your friends and you want to help them. Okay, thank you. We've got a question behind there and one down here as well. Um, uh, yeah, it's... I want to begin on this. Um, what is the, the best number of people to have in a room? I guess too much is not good. Yeah, too, yeah. too little is, is the same problem. Yeah, it's a, really, it's a really interesting point, that, because I agree. I, I work on a lot of, um, or I have worked on a lot of British TV comedy shows. And um, there's one that we have, which has been running for about 25 years. It's a topical comedy show called Have I Got News For You. And... Um, we have three writers, and that seems to be a really good number, because you, you kind of, if there's ever a disagreement, you know, two against one. Um, the Americans, when they run rooms, they have 12 people in sometimes. It's crazy. I mean, there's two kinds of rooms, just to be clear. There's the first kind of room, which is like, if, imagine you're working on, you know, um, 
and a man in the high castle, a Netflix series or something. Those rooms are, we're going to have eight or ten writers, you're on contracts, you're in a room from nine in the morning till six at night, five days a week. You hate each other by the end of it, but you'll come out with 20 episodes of a man in the high castle. That's a very intense process, and, and the idea is that those writers will go off and write episodes and bring them back in. The process we're talking about, which is the punch-up process, is let's get some writers into the room to work on this script or this reel, make it funnier. I think 12 is way too many. Uh, the American rooms, uh, it just, as much as anything, the problem is it's too many because you feel intimidated about saying things that, you know, because you have to be able to fail, is what I was saying about success grows in the garden of failure. And when you're in a room with people you trust, that's the important thing because you're going to have to say stuff that's going to be shit sometimes. And, they, and, and they're not going to judge you on it because they know that you're trying to get something good. So uh, I would say, for me, three to six is enough. You have a question down the front, actually. You can just... Uh, I, don't, I haven't written one, but um, I think there might be some. Yes, I, I can't recommend any... Uh, it's, it's comedy such a strange thing, you know. It's so subjective. Um, I would say uh, you just have to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, ask people. They might know. I don't know. What's that? Oh, they're comedy tour books. Yeah. I should read them myself, to be honest with you. But. John Thoris. Oh, John Thoris. Thor, this gentleman knows one. Yeah, so ask him yeah, if it was his. I've got a question there. Okay, um, so at the risk of uh, directing the, the conversation beyond you, and actually I'm looking for your expertise and thought, um, thought as a, a, a brilliant person in this area. You mentioned that... Um, if the BoJack folks were here, they would probably disagree with half of the stuff you said. What are some of the things that are on your radar at this moment that are particularly uh, format-challenging, rule-breaking, that you think are working? Uh, or that maybe you're working on? Well, I mean, it's in, I, mean I was talking like, it's, that's a, a quite a big question because, I mean, BoJack Horse, what I would say is they would disagree with half of it and probably vehemently agree with the other half. Uh, because I think a lot of the craft is, they would use a lot of the craft. Um, they've certainly played fast and loose with the rules. American, uh, you know, Family Guy, that's another one which plays fast and loose because they got the confidence now because they've been going for so long. I mean, Miyazaki movies, and I was talking about Miyazaki movies earlier with the guys, and it's like, that, that you know they're brilliant, but they're, it's a very different kind of storytelling. It's kind of like a, a, a I guess it's a Japanese style of storytelling. Uh, and so, um, as a kind of Western storyteller, uh, sometimes I, I, I can see that it's very different what they're doing, and I, I'm thinking, wow, it's amazing. I don't know, I can't do what you do, um, but it's very different from what I would do. So that there's, there's kind of different disciplines. Um, I mean, has anyone seen The Isle of Dogs? I mean, that's a really interesting one. It's, it, um, I don't know what I thought. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I do like uh, Wes Anderson movies, and, um, and I like um, a lot of art house or, you know, um, animation as well. Um, but Isle of Dogs, I wasn't sure what I thought. I don't know what you guys felt. I was kind of like on the fence about it because I felt it was, I found it so strange that I almost couldn't engage with it. It was sort of a strange mix of the, the kind of Japanese culture, but then these very American characters, I don't know. So, but that, you know, that's a good example. That was got an Oscar nomination. So that's, you know, if Wes Anderson was here, he'd be shaking his head going, you know, get this guy off the stage. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, I think rules are made to be broken. Rules are made to be broken, but I'll say one thing. 
Learn the rules first. Learn the rules first, then break them. I respect you for that. Don't just break them because you're lazy and you can't learn the rules. Are we done? I've got one more here. Uh, what were the challenges for you when you moved from uh, screenwriter scri screenwriting into uh, directing uh, mm. Shaun of the Sheep? Okay. Um, well, the first challenge for me was um, I'm a, a technical dunce. So um, I literally didn't know anything, really. I, I, I would go into a room and I'd be like, what's that object? And they'd say, that's a camera mark. Go, oh, right, okay. But the funny thing was, it didn't matter because I had great people around me. I respected their craft. And I started to learn very quickly. Um, I was, uh, the, the challenge, the technical challenge was hard. Uh, and I think what I became to understand about directing, uh, which is a big dimensional step beyond writing, is that you are a manager. It's not enough just to be about the creativity of it. You have to be able to manage people to get the best out of people because you can't do it on your own. If you're just a director that tries to do it on your own, you're going to fail, I think. You have to be able to manage people and get the best out of them. So there's a management side to it. You also have to manage how you make your film. You have to think tactically all the time about what's the best way of getting what I want because people will just do what you tell them, which is great. Great fun, by the way. It's like being God. It's fantastic, you know. Oh, I think we should have a workshop. Okay, we'll organize a workshop. I said on Sean the Sheet 1, let's get some actors together and do some workshops. And they organized it at a local theater, went and did it. Uh, it was quite useful. Um, you know, you'd, uh, so it's things like that where you have to sort of really think and not what can happen if you're a director, particularly in feature animation, because it's so full on, is that you end up like being a politician where you come into work and they've got a list of tasks for you. And they go, yes, nine in the morning, go on unit one, 9.15, you've got a special effects meeting, 9.30, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and you're like, hang on, hang on a second, because is any of this going to make the story better? So you have to do all those things, but you have to take a step back and go, at the end of the day, what are the audience going to see uh, on the screen? That's what counts. And I remember I used to say to myself at the end of a very long day as director, where they would be chasing you. You'd have people chasing you around the room. They'd chase you around the studio. You'd hide in the toilets and then knock on the door. Mark, come on out. You have it coming out. And um, you, would go, you would go, I know, I've got to imagine, and I'm, you know, I'm saying this to the directors that are directing the movie at the moment, I would say, imagine, all you have to think about is the day you sit in that chair in the premiere, and all those other conversations around, all the conversations around politics and so on, no one's going to care. The audience come in, the lights are going to go off and they're going to show the film, and you're going to go, oh, why did I let, get away with that? I knew that joke wasn't right, but I just didn't say it because blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's all those kind of things where it's all about content and what's on the screen and, 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 and thinking about your audience and what they're thinking and how they're going to enjoy it. So I think that was the biggest challenge for me. Um, writing is this kind of, you know, it's bad things about it and that you don't have the power, but you, you, you know, at the same time, you can just write stuff and go on, director, you go and do that. And if they make a mistake and cock it up, it's like, well, that's your fault. I'm a genius, but you cocked it up. But when you're the director, uh, you don't have that. You have to, you know, you, you are, the, the, the buck stops with you. It's a brilliant thing, by the way. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, so if anybody ever get a chance to do it, I'd definitely do it. But um, put everything else on hold. Any, everything, family, marriage, sleep, uh, just put it on hold, but it's great. And I think we're probably wrapping up there. I think we, is there anybody else for a last question? I think we're all done. Thank you for being, oh, we've got one last question over here and then we'll, then we'll wrap. 
Hi. Uh, I will have a question about uh, what do you think about, do you still sometimes ID and how far do you go uh, with ID that you see to some, to some other movies? I yeah. mean, maybe, so, sorry for my French. That's okay. <laughs> But, I mean, like, it's about inspiration and originality and how do you deal with some, some stuff that you see in other movies that you can pick? Uh, do you mean like, are you talking about me borrowing, th being, borrowing things from other films or? Yeah. Um, well, I think I, I never consciously uh, steal. Um, what I do do is, I mean, that was a Steve Jobs, and Steve Jobs used to say, uh, uh, mediocrity borrows, genius steals. And then um, Samsung stole loads of Apple uh, technology and he, he sued them, so he, he didn't mean it. But um, there's a great process, you know, called um, cryptonesia. Let me give you this word. I discovered this word, I love it. Cryptonesia. Now, we know about amnesia. Amnesia is when you forget. Cryptonesia is when you remember something, but you think you've created it. And I think, I'll be honest with you, in this room, my whole career is based on cryptonesia, which is where you go, oh, I've had a brilliant idea. And then it's only like later that you realize, oh, I saw that film. And, but that's okay, I think, as long as it's done uh, with integrity. I never steal, I never go, oh, let's have that. What you do do is you go, um, you're influenced by things, obviously. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of, um, you have an idea and it's, you're influenced by what else has been, been going around, what's happening, other films that you've seen. And I think it's okay if the dialectic is that you move it forward in some way. You do something different. It's like music, isn't it? You know, all music is based on previous music, to be honest with you. But you don't mind because, you know, you hear a band, you hear Oasis and you go, that's the Beatles. But it's okay because it's not the Beatles. It's something slightly different. And, and I, think, uh, so I think that process can be a positive one. I think what's bad is people who just steal. And I think it, it shows because then, you know, the stuff you do, it just feels hollow. Because when you try and steal somebody else's thing, you're not going to do it as well as they did. So, um, so I think that's cryptonesia. That's my word of the day. Okay, thanks very much, everybody. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs>